Rooting for the Penguins this week must have been like spending a week riding the Jackrabbit at Kennywood Park. The roller coaster of emotions are the byproduct of the win-one-lose-one mode the Penguins have been in since last Saturday night. And within the games themselves, there were highs and lows that are not for the faint of heart. And for the first time since last March 5th, 2,800 Penguins fans got to experience those emotions in person. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Penguins Live Weekly. This is Paul Steigerwald along with Brian Metzer. Wayne Gretzky-Anderson is at the controls. And Metz, those highs and lows were a little bit much to handle, I thought, this week. I think that was a good analogy you made, Stag, with the uh, jackrabbit, because that roller coaster not only goes up and down, but it throws you around in the seat a little bit whenever it's making its bends. So, yeah, that's exactly what this week was like for the Penguins, uh, and the fans definitely experienced it, but I know they're thrilled that they experienced uh, a couple of those in person. Absolutely. Sid was out, but then he was right back in. So uh, that's another high and low, I guess we could. Yeah, I don't know that anybody anticipated that popping up where Sid gets placed on the COVID protocol list and he's out of the mix for a little bit. But luckily, didn't miss much time. They must have gotten that resolved quickly and did whatever contact tracing and or testing that was necessary. And he was right back out there on Thursday evening joining his teammates. Penguins are 7-4 and in their last 11 games, but they're stuck in fifth place. It's it's crazy to look at it that way, but they have had a really difficult schedule. I, I feel up to this point, things are going to get a little better for them in that regard. But uh, yeah, I I still believe that to be in, in the position they're in at this point is a good spot for them. Yesterday they announced that uh, Mark Friedman is going to be out with an upper body injury after he collided with Nolan Patrick trying to hit him and took the worst of it uh, in the game on um, uh, Thursday. It was one of those three goals that were scored in a minute and 11 seconds, and we'll get to that in a moment. But generally, the Penguins are healthier on the blue line than they've been in a long time. Yeah, it looks like we're going to see uh, Brian Dumoulin make his triumphant return to the to uh, to the team, which he's been out for quite a while. Now you almost forget that he's here because he hasn't played in so long. That will be a big boost to this team. Hopefully he's able to skate the way we, we have seen him in the past, and he'll make a nice pairing with Chris Letang again. I know on Friday he went through the motions with his usual partner, and that's a really good thing for this team. Pierre-Olivier Joseph was sent to Wilkes-Barre, but uh, Yuso Ricola is uh, ready to play. I wonder if they would not plug him into one of these two games this weekend. Yeah, it, it's... I don't know. It, I guess it depends on how it goes. You know, if they don't have a good showing later today, maybe on uh, Sunday evening, they make a change on the blue line. But if they win, I don't know that he's going to experiment. He'll just go with the lineup and, and take it from there. But uh, I, I do like that things are starting to look a little bit more like they should have when they're fully healthy and you know who's in your lineup. We will have the highlights of all four, yes, four games played already this week, and we will hear from the Penguins and Flyers coaches and players just a few hours from the rubber match of their three-game series today at 1. We'll also talk about the return of the fans and what the Penguins need to do to complete the puzzle, what their management needs to do. It's another hour of spirited Saturday morning hockey talk on the Penguins Hockey Network presented by s Bank. Welcome back to Penguins Live Weekly. We're here every Saturday morning at 9 a.m. and we take a look back at the week that was for the Pittsburgh Penguins. And the week began with an exhilarating roar from behind win on Long Island last Saturday night. And it ended with an exasperating fizzle from ahead loss to the Flyers on Thursday night. In the first game of the first of back-to-back situation of the season, the Penguins spotted the Islanders a 2-0 lead on goals by Brock Nelson late in the first, Matt Barzell early in the second, and then the Penguins got on the comeback trail when the Islanders' goalie threw a shoe while the Pens were on the power play. Power play goes to work. Crosby left wing circle shoots. He scores! And the Penguins capitalize just like that. It's Sidney Crosby with a blast from the left side. 2-1. 
Chris Letang had already scored his only two goals of the season against the Islanders, so why not make it a third 26 seconds later? Shot from Gensel as the Penguins surging a bit here. That was blocked to the far corner. Picked up by Kapanen. Comes behind the net right side. Latang a shot. He scores! And just like that, the Penguins have tied this game. Chris Latang to the back of the net. His third goal of the season, all against the Islanders. 2-2. To their credit, the Islanders reclaimed the lead in the second period when Josh Bailey finished off a tic-tac-toe play, making it 3-2. And then just 18 seconds into the third, Gino hooked up with his new line mate, Jared McCann, who had missed seven previous games. Play back underway, and here come the Penguins in a two-on-one right out of the gate. It's Malkin for McCann in alone. Shoots, he scores! And just 18 seconds in, Jared McCann back in the lineup, right on the score sheet, tie game. Rest of the third period was scoreless, and the two teams were just 26 seconds from a shootout when Latang made it all four of his goals against the Islanders. First to the puck is Latang. Chops it right side for Crosby. 34 seconds left in overtime. We'll see what the Penguins can come up with here. Latang through center over the Islander logo. Gains the line. Right side. Shoots one. He scores! Chris Latang! And you can lock the doors and turn out the lights because the Penguins have won this game in overtime. Make it four in a row over the Islanders. 4 3 pens. Jari got the win in his seventh straight start, and the Penguins are now 4-1 and one in overtime and have won seven of eight games that have gone past regulation. And that's, I guess, the good news is there they get the extra points. The bad is, uh, news is that they're conceding points to teams that they might be battling for that playoff spot. Well, and I, I think that kind of speaks to um, what we mentioned in our post game that night and other nights, Stag. They have pretty much just as much wins as or as many wins as everybody else in the division ahead of them. It's just that they have given so many points to the, everybody that they've played that they are down in fifth place in the division even after a week of action. So they've got to find ways to win more games in regulation, which by the end of this past week, what's it been, five total on the season? That's not a very good look. And only a few in the last, like, 37 games. It's like a ridiculous Yeah, going back number. to last year, it's, yeah. it's not a, a really good run for them. So they've got to find ways to finish off games in the opening 60. Jari's streak of starts would end the next night when Casey DeSmith got the start in the second of back-to-backs. DeSmith did everything he could to give the Penguins a chance to win, but the Penguins laid an egg in front of him, allowing two power play goals to Oliver Wallstrom and J.G. Pajot. The Penguins were outshot 30-20. to It was a game of very few shots, and a post-game of very few words from Mike Sullivan. It's a number of things. It's just not good enough. we got to be better. Gave you a sense of the kind of first period that your team would have tonight? No. No. <laughs> well, Sully was sour. And I'd have to say those were the shortest answers we've ever heard him give uh, since he came to Pittsburgh. Yeah, and I think we were jokingly saying that's where you see the John Tortorella mentorship coming into play there because that's what it reminded me of, some of those press conferences that John Torts has done. And uh, Sullivan was certainly not pleased for good reason. It was one of those nights for his team, and it's disheartening because uh, Casey DeSmith was really good in this game. So a stretch of six games against the Islanders in February ended with one of their most lifeless performances of the year. And a two-point differential, even though the Penguins were 4-2 and two against them for eight points, the Islanders were 2-2-2 two, two and two going the other way for uh, six. So the Penguins had a two-point edge after all that. And uh, it looks good on paper when you see that 4-2 and two record, Mets. But like you were just saying, it's, uh, it's weird how they do the math in the NHL. Well, it's kind of, uh, I think it harkens back to your numbers that you had on the Penguins versus Capitals. It looks like the Pens rolled that series. But when you look at it, they got one less point than the Penguins whenever it was all said and done. So, yeah, they've done that kind of against the Islanders as well. 
But the other side of that coin is that the Penguins are playing the Islanders and Capitals a ton, or they did during the month of February. And that's a tough schedule. And I know we're going to get into this a little bit more, but let's let's save it for later. But obviously the Penguins are going to be playing teams that those teams, the Capitals and the Islanders, have fattened up on so far. Yeah, they have uh, roughly 37% of their remaining schedule is against the Rangers, Devils, and uh, Sabres. So that'll be a, hopefully an easier road to toe for the Penguins. So the Penguins returned to Pittsburgh for the start of a five-game homestand on Tuesday night. And Monday morning, they got some very good news from the governor. And this didn't just come together today. Uh, the Penguin staff have been working on this for over a year, or just 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 under a year. Uh, and I think, you know, the hard work that went into it. Our our season ticket holders have been loyal, loyal. Uh, they've maintained their contact with us. We've maintained contact with them. Our corporate partners have been loyal. Uh, and, and we're very excited for our corporate partners, our season ticket holders, and I'm sure our players are excited. And there's been a lot of changes to uh, the arena over the last year. I mentioned the hard work that the workers here at the Penguins have uh, performed, uh, but with Aramark and with uh, ASM, we've done a lot of, lot of different changes. The fans are gonna see mobile ticketing, mobile parking, uh, uh, concession stands that are grab-and-go, touchless, restrooms that are touchless. Uh, we have a drone that actually cleans the arena after the games uh, that sprays a, a, a special uh, solution onto the seats that keeps COVID from being able to stay on surfaces. Uh, we have a lot of different cleaning protocols. We're also gonna have protocols for fans on times of arrival, gates to arrive in, we're trying to uh, dissipate as much as we can any kind of crush on one door so we maintain our social distance of uh, six feet. So uh, when people are buying tickets, they'll be told what time they're supposed to come to the game and what gate they're supposed to arrive at. The economic impact of this is, is you know, it's, it's very great. And I think this is the first step back to normality. And uh, we hope that, uh, you know, as we continue to get more and more people vaccined, as we prove to the, to the league and to the country that we can open our building to 2,800 fans and keep, keep them safe, I think uh, it'll be a lot quicker that we can open up, open up all of those other economic doors. That is Penguins CEO David Morehouse, of course. 2,800 fans were granted entrance for the first of a three-game series with the Flyers Tuesday, but they learned only a couple of hours before game time that they would not be seeing Sidney Crosby in person. And, uh, well, you know, uh, things happen. I mean, it's amazing, really, the Penguins went that long without a major incident, and it was Sidney Crosby, of all people, on a night when they were announcing the return of the fans, their captain ends up uh, on the COVID list. Which could have been uh, their first chance to praise it a little bit for his 1,000th game because they weren't there to do that a couple weeks ago. So uh, isn't that always the way that it doesn't work out the way you want it to? I, and I know we said it in the open stag, but I guess the good news is it seems like all ended up being okay for Sidney Crosby. He returned for Thursday, but uh, it was a shock whenever I heard the news and then Todd Reardon was on the list as well, we should mention, and both were able to return. So I don't know if that was a testing issue or what it was maybe something they needed to clear up with a contact that either had 
But uh, they weren't available for this game, but the Penguins responded in a big way like they tend to do when Sidney Crosby's out of the mix. Yep, the Penguins have had a history of rising to the occasion when Sid is out of the lineup, often because Geno elevates his game. He took Sid's spot between Jake Ensel and Brian Rust, and after the Flyers got the obligatory first goal of the game from Joel Farabee early in the second, Shane Gostisbehere gifted a breakaway to Kasperi Kapitan. Back in come the Flyers. Gostisbehere on the near side, spins off a Tanev check. Passes far side, picked off by Kapanen, he's loose, on a breakaway, Kasperi Kapanen fakes the shot, shoots, he scores! Kasperi Kapanen ties this game from the right wing circle, 1-1. That was the first of two for the finish finisher. To the center point for Kapanen, skate to stick, passes near side for Latang. down low for Malkin in the near corner. Left circle for Russ, spins it back to the point for Latang. under a minute left in the power play. Left side, Malkin snaps it down low for Russ. Backdoor again, so across he comes for Kapanen. He shoots and scores! Make it two for double K. 2-1 on a power play goal. Pittsburgh in front. The Penguins swarmed the Flyers' net for a 3-1 lead on a goal by Brian Rust, and after Farabee got another one to make it 3-2 11 minutes into the third, the Penguins got two more goals from defensemen, Mike Matheson and this one by Cody Ceci to complete an amazing Harlem Globetrotters-esque Passing play. Picked off by CeCe. Rolls to the far wall. Collected there by McCann. He'll snap it ahead for CeCe. Up on the play for the Pens. They have a three on two. Back it comes for Freeman. Left side for McCann. Back door CeCe. He shoots and scores. CeCe puts it home. His second of the year. Tick, tack, toe. Four two Pens. That was a great way to welcome back fans. The key was killing two early penalties and weathering an early storm. And, of course, uh, Tristan Jari was a big part of that, Mets. Oh, he was great, Stag, specifically um, starting at, from the earliest moments of the game when the Penguins were shorthanded twice in the opening 357 of action. Actually, beyond that, because the second penalty came at 357. So uh, he stood on his head. He made, two, he made two really big saves on the first one and then four on the second. The 5-2 win ran the Penguins' home record to 8-1 and, and made it a great time for the 2,800 in attendance. And two nights later, the Penguins got good news on Sidney Crosby only a couple of hours before the game. He was off the COVID list and back in the lineup for a wistful 1 minute and 11 seconds. It felt like the good old days of Penguins' offensive dominance. To the near side wall where it's played by McCann up ahead for Malkin. Passes right side for Kapanen. Tries to catch that puck in the flyer zone. He's beaten to it by Myers. Lost it right back, though, to Kapanen, who takes a hit up high from Michael Raffle. He's hurt in the near side corner. Penguins shoot right point and score! It was Chris Letang putting that puck on goal. It got past Elliott and in. And the Pens had the first goal of this game for just the ninth time this season. 1-0. Here come the Pens. It is the offense leading the charge. Crosby down the left wing. Snapper stopped by Elliott. The rebound put in. They score! His first is a Penguin. The former flyer, Mark Friedman, burns his former mates, and it's 2-0 Pittsburgh. To the far side, Couturier back to the point, picked off by Malkin. Out come the Pens, three on two. It's McCann, left side for Malkin. They're looking for more. Malkin to Kapanen, back door for McCann. He scores! The Penguins are rocking and rolling here on Thursday night. Three-nothing, Pittsburgh. Jared McCann finds the twine. But a high-sticking penalty to Jake Gensel led to a power play goal by Sean Couturier in the first that put the Flyers back on the comeback trail, and two goals by the Flyers' captain, including the game winner, made it a sobering night for the Penguins. Flyers controlling a shot that comes in on goal from the right side. Deflected in, they score! It was Abe Cubell put it to the side of the net, poked in by Claude Giroux. And the Flyer captain has given Philadelphia the lead with 2.08 to play. 
Sid, on that note, uh, the game-to-game consistency hasn't been there for you guys. I mean, you, you'll have a big win and then maybe a little bit of a letdown and then you'll bounce back. I guess what's your frustration level to that and what's the key you guys getting on a roll? Um, I don't know. I mean, I wouldn't say it's one specific thing. I mean, usually when you're not able to put it get, put it together, that's that's kind of the, the case. So, um, you know, I think just our overall game, you know, the total package, you know, whether it's special teams or, you know, creating more zone time consistently. Um, you know, tonight we have a great start. Other games, our starts haven't been as good. So, um, you know, just really trying to put it all together um, each night, I think, is, is the biggest challenge for us and for any team. I mean, uh, there's going to be swings in momentum, but, um, you know, we just got to find ways to, to come up with some big plays too. On a night when the Penguins' captain was the story before the game, the Flyers' captain was the story afterwards. Here's Scott Lawton of the Flyers on his captain, Claude Giroux. Obviously, he's our captain. He's our leader. He, he uh, brings us into the fight, and he gets two big uh, two big goals late for us there, and um, her, her he gets a, a goal late for us there and um, takes big face-offs. He kills penalties. He's on the power play. Um, he does a lot for our group, so... I'm happy to see uh, him get rewarded with two tonight and and, uh, a really good comeback win for us. So the Flyers do come back. They win the game. Uh, Elaine Vigneault had called a timeout after it was 3-0 Pittsburgh. Uh, You know, I was thinking, Mets, about that goal that Couturier scored. If you look at it on the replay, John Marino makes a half-hearted effort to block the shot. He kind of turns sideways. It's almost better if he just gets out of the way. Because yep. I actually think Tristan Jari didn't see the shot because of him being there. It was a great shot, too. It was a great shot. It was a rising shot over the glove arm of, of Jari that he may have stopped had he seen it. He never really saw it. You know, I think he felt it going by. But the reason I bring it up is because I think it's a big reason why the Penguins don't kill penalties that well. They don't block shots like they used to. No. I mean, Ian Cole used to stand in there, and he one time took a shot off his face. You know, because that they just knew that's what they had to do. Remember Nick Bonino blocking shots? You know, so I think that was a big reason, is a big reason why the Penguins penalty killers. And I think that was Exhibit A of a goal that could have maybe been prevented uh, if either Marino is out of the way or he actually does block the shot. No, the block would have been huge there. And we, we I know we broke that down a little bit a couple weeks ago, just talking how the Penguins don't block like they used to. So it's a shame uh, in that play that he might have screened his goaltender and kept his eyes uh, shielded. But they've got, they've got to get better with puck pursuit in the, their own zone and not just puck watch. They've been doing that too much. Yes, they have. And we'll get into that a little bit more later on. But we're going to take a break right now. and we'll be back. You're listening to Penguins Live Weekly on the Penguins. Radio Network presented by S&T Bank. Welcome back to Penguins Live Weekly and uh, Mets. Uh, we're reminded again by the performance by the Penguins on Tuesday night what they're capable of doing when Sidney Crosby's out of the lineup. If Genny Malkin gets promoted to the top line, he's got the two blessed wingers. I think that helps his cause, but there's more to it than that. It's like everybody raises their game. Yeah, and I know we talked about it on the postgame show that night. Is it a matter of them not relying on Sid? Do they feel like, okay, we've got to We've got to step up because he's out, and when he's in, they're like, oh, he's Superman. He'll take care of it for us, but it it doesn't make sense that they're that much better statistically when he is out, but when you look at it, he's now missed 200 games over the course of his career, and they've gone 116, 60, and 24 in those hockey games for a 640 point percentage, and when they've had him, they're 563, 339, and 102 for a point percentage of just 616, uh, 616, I mean, in, in 1,004 games. So I, I, I don't know. I know it's a lot 
larger sample size when he's in. But still, 200 games is a lot. <laughs> it is. 20. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it, it's just crazy that they're, you know, uh, 64% uh, collecting points when he's when he's out. It doesn't make sense. Well, think about it. They're the only team in the league that really has two number one centers. I yep. mean, you know, which brings me to another thing I thought of, okay, is that neither one of those guys is a number two center, if you really think about it. You know, like I think of a number two center, I think of Ron Francis. You know, I think of uh, maybe even Forsberg to Joe Sackett. Yep. You know, or Henrik Zetterberg to Pavel Datsuk. That might be a stretch because those two are kind of one, two, one, well, a, but one. Th- think about that, Stag. Uh, they always have one guy that is more like defensive. Right. And, and maybe, and this would never happen, and this might be where you're going. It is May- where I'm going. <laughs> maybe Gino's the number one center and Sid should be number two to be that more defensive. And, and on paper, let's the put defensive it in, presence. Let's, let's put it in these. The more selkie let's, guy. Let's change, the, <laughs> let's change the language, okay? One A, one B. Yeah, or no. Offensive centerman? Yep. You know, two-way, like 200-foot guy, okay? Uh, responsible, defensive, selkie-type player yep. that Sid's become. Who was his idol? Steve Eiserman. I wonder sometimes, just now, okay, we might be at the be seeing the last of Evgeny Malkin in Pittsburgh. I mean, it's possible he could get traded in the offseason. Absolutely. Yep. You know, so we can't rule that out. I mean, it's not— it's, At the very know, least, not get a contract extension, so we're looking at the last absolutely. couple seasons here. So yeah. maybe it's not a bad time in this shortened season, under the circumstances, to maybe take a look at that and see what it would look like if Gino were suddenly playing with the top two wingers. If you load it up with Gino, Mr. Offense, okay, with the, the offensive wingers, and you got absolutely the most potency you could get out of those players because they're going to be greater than the sum of their parts. And you put Sid with a guy like Kapitan. He's no he's no slouch, by the way. No. Now, it would be nice if Zucker was available, but, you know, you'd like to have a good, solid left winger on the other side. But you know you're going to get the best version of Sid every night. And I don't know if you know you're going to get the best version of Gino every night because we haven't seen it, okay? And then all of a sudden he comes to life. Not that he played this great game, but I still think he, he looked more like Gino on Tuesday night with those two guys playing on their side. And we know what he did last year with them. Uh, and we also know that throughout that first half of the season last year when Sid was out, the Penguins looked phenomenal. They played a tight brand of hockey. They were good defensively. They were always above the puck. They played conscientiously. And then when Sid came back, you know, and it wasn't because of Sid. It's just because of the dynamic of Sid and Gino and how they're used, I think, that the team's look changed after uh, Sid came back. Well, and I, I know we hit on this earlier in the week too, Stag. When you see them without Sid, it's a simpler game. They, they get pucks to the net, they, they clean up rebounds, they play a little bit more sound defensively, they maybe attack off the rush only when it's there. Uh, it's just a simpler hockey game, and it seems to work better for them. The minute he comes in, everybody, it's kind of the knock on the Penguins going back ages, where a guy would get traded here, even who was known for his defense, or was known to be a more blue-collar, two-way guy, and suddenly he thinks he's going to be, you know, the next Wayne Gretzky or something. He's, oh, I'm playing with the Penguins now. I'm going to roll up the offense. And when they're both in the lineup, maybe that mentality is a little bit more prevalent. That's a good way of putting it. Because everybody thinks that. But to your point about maybe making Gino the guy, he's always been a a player that could step up minus Sid. I mean, he's 1.35 points per game when Sid's been out of the lineup and he's been in. So the other aspect of that is, when he came here, he talked about that that tier system in Russia. And if you were the number one center, you were looked at to to step up and score the goals and do all the good things offensively. The number two, three guy, maybe not as much, even though they would still do it. And when he got here, he pretty much always, he, and still to this day, he defers to Sid. Sid is best. Sid is the best player. You know, Sid is Yeah, great. that deference is what you're talking about. Yeah. Like earlier when you were saying the Penguins think that the, he's going to do it. Yeah. And I think that's maybe Gino a little bit. Yes. And, and when he knows he is the guy, 
he raises his offensive game to the levels that we've seen. Now, when we've, we've had the stars align on occasion and had them both playing at the highest level at the same time, the Penguins are Stanley Cup contenders almost every single time that's happened. When they're not both at that level and Gino's not himself or for some reason Sid's not 100% health-wise, they're not there. So mm-hmm. maybe that's it. You know what? I can also think of a uh, time when Sid was injured and the Penguins acquired James Neal. And everybody was thinking, this is the kind of guy Sid needs to play. Because everybody was always begging yep. for Sid to have a you know winger yep. of that caliber. Well, what happens? He ends up playing with Gino, And they have tremendous chemistry together. And that's not the first time that happened. Kessel that's has ha- been the same. That Kessel was that way. Yeah. He was going to be Sid's winger. Yeah. And I think we saw Kapanen get acquired to be Sid's winger. We all talked about it all offseason. Then he's down the lineup, either with Gino or, or below. And is that... The difficulty of having to play with Sidney Crosby. I mean, we saw Patrick Hornquist maybe have some issues with that. I know Ryan Malone is the first guy I think of all the time. And he just kind of jokingly talked about over the course of his career, I didn't like playing with Sid because he yelled at me sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) And I mean, Sid required, I think Sid. He's demanding. He's a prototypical hockey player, as we always say. But he's demanding of his wingers. He wants that line to play the way that he has it in his mind that it's going to play. And if you're not living up to that, he's not necessarily in love with that combination. And does the coach defer to that? Maybe. I don't know. Uh, You don't know that for sure. But based on the fact that guys come off the line, I'm sure his input, is his suggestions are taken to heart. Um, And it's always intriguing that he's meshed with guys like Chris Kunitz and Pascal Dupuis and more blue collar guys that you don't picture as being these high skill levels to mesh with him, but it's worked beautifully. So they're just guys that dig in the corners and kind of do the grunt work, but still like read and react off of him beautifully. And and it's made great music. And don't you think Sid kind of fits the bill as more of a second line center right now with his face off prowess? Yep. and the way he plays the game, the two hundred foot game, he's so responsible. He's, he's always been like in, in the last. Not, 10 not that years he hasn't. Been at, yeah. yeah, he has. But I, and I think he doesn't score as often. Right? Yeah, like he doesn't score goals the way he used to. And not that think, he couldn't explode all of a sudden. But do you think it's because he's focused more on the two hundred foot maybe. game now? I mean, it's possible. And, and he, I mean, he's altered his game a hair. And we've all talked about that. The older these players get. I mean, we saw it with, I think we saw it with Mario. You, you saw Gretzky do it a little bit to stay in the league and keep your longevity going. I think Joe Sackick did it. Steve Eiserman, as an example, did it. They were top-tier offensive guys. Later in their career, they still scored a good bit, but they, they became more of a two-way guy. You, you have to adapt to exist once your speed's not quite the same. And maybe as you get a little bit older, and you've got to learn how to play differently. We saw Mario do it. Yeah, and he he, he did it very well. So I, I think that Sid has started that transition. Gino hasn't, and I think it's costing him. Right, and yet if you put Gino with the big uh, guns, maybe it we, doesn't he, have to. he still has a lot of Gino <laughs> left in him because it was only a year ago that he was unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, he was playing unbelievable he was, he was well over a point per game. Uh, what did he have, like 70-some points in 50 games or something like that. I don't remember the exact numbers, but it was it was great. He was having one of his best seasons, and then he kind of vanished in the return to play in the playoffs. He wasn't quite as good, so uh, that's disappointing. But uh, I think I think you're on to something, Steph. Okay, we only got about a minute and a half, and uh, this just in, they're not going to do that, what we just talked about. It's never going to happen. No, no, but, but that's what this is for. <laughs> exactly. But, uh, okay, we got about a minute now. But, you know, we're talking about uh, the fourth line. Okay, Rodriguez comes back today. What are the Penguins going to do about their fourth line? It's been a lot of uh, intrigue for me watching Mike Sullivan plug and play guys. I mean, Colton Sevier's been in. Rodriguez was playing in the top six when he was healthy before. So how's that going to work? Is he going to come in and be a, a bottom six guy? That might be a good look. Yeah, I he, think he'd be good at because he's fast. Yeah. He has some skill. Yeah, yeah, I think that's what he's meant for. To be honest with now, you, now uh, Angelo's looked pretty good in the role. He just not an offensive guy. They need to get some production there. 
So you got to find a guy, and I keep going back to the Lightning when they acquired uh, Blake Coleman and Barclays Goudreau. Those were guys that played in their bottom six that made, uh, Coleman for sure played in a, a top six role for the Devils and put up 20 goals. He gets to Tampa Bay and he's playing in the bottom six. He's a hitter, but he can still score a timely goal and do some great things. So with those guys, that type of guy, that's who you wish the Penguins could go out and acquire. They don't come cheap. Because not only are they physical, but they can score. So for right now, I hope Erod is somebody that can step into the role and and do a little bit. Maybe score the time. Well, he's going to have to guys. play the left side. I think yeah. he's a right shot. Yeah. He's going to have to play the left side, and, and they don't have a really a left winger to put there because Seaver's a right shot. He yep. was playing left wing. Yeah, and then you got Jankowski in the middle, who's not producing either. Not since the first week of the season. I kind of like to see the Penguins get a right-handed centerman or move Lafferty into the middle there. He's right-handed. He, yep. he, that's his natural you've, position. You've been cheerleading that all, like, for weeks. I, I have for a while. Yep. So you know, I, I think it's going to be a task for Ron Hextall. I think he's got to find somebody and he tr- will try to do that. Well, and I feel like they probably have a couple of names in mind and we're getting down to it. What are we, about roughly a little over a month from the trade deadline? So it's April 5th, I think. So we'll, we'll see what happens. Okay, we'll be back with Tim Saunders, the radio voice of the Philadelphia Flyers in a moment. Penguins Live Weekly on the Penguins Radio Network presented by s Bank. Penguins Live Weekly continues and we welcome in now Tim Saunders, the radio voice of the Philadelphia Flyers. And uh, obviously in the middle of this three-game series of the rubber match this afternoon. And, Timmy, uh, what a comeback it was for the Flyers on Thursday night. Yeah, I don't think we didn't see that really coming. Uh, First four minutes, we were looking at each other like, oh, my God, what the hell just happened? (laughs) Uh, That was was about as bad as I've ever seen for a start of the game. But to their credit, they, they dug in. They started to play the right way. And didn't give up anything after that. So, uh, hey, you never know. Yeah, I guess the lesson there, Tim, is that uh, no game is won or lost in a minute and 11 seconds. I think it's different if you maybe get three goals in the course of an entire period and you're kind of dominating for 20 minutes. And then, you know, you have that lead and you feel pretty good about how you're playing. But when it happens like that, it's almost like a fluke. You know what I mean? Yeah, uh, for sure. And, and you know, you can, you can point to two of the three goals uh, either hitting our own guys or uh, Giroux and the one tried to bat one out and put it right onto a penguin stick. Uh, the fact of the matter is, the game's not four minutes old and you're down three. You're thinking uh, this is going to be a long night. So uh, the fact that they they dug back in and got into the game and uh, came away with two points was a huge uh, boon for the Flyers. Hey, Tim, it's Brian Metzer here. Thanks for doing this with us. Uh, I, what impressed me about the way they came back is there's an awful lot of young players on that roster. I know the vets are still there, but I, I thought it showed a, a great level of maturity for a young hockey team to not kind of fold up the tents after going down early in the game. And I even saw Vigneault on the bench kind of look up and tell his guys when he took the time out, that, look how much time is left, pretty much telling them to calm down, get it back together. Did, did you kind of see it that way a little bit as well? Yeah, a little bit. It kind of reminded me of the series in Boston in 2010. Remember when they went down three games to none to the Bruins yep. in that playoff series, and then three games to none in Game 7. And Peter Laviolette was the coach at the time and uh, got him to the bench and, and, and said, guys, we need one goal before the end of the period, something to build on, one goal, settle down, you've got a lot of game to play. And uh, it, he kind of had the same uh, effect. Obviously, it was uh, a well-timed timeout to kind of gather them and, and, and you know, kind of settle them down. And for sure, it was uh, unexpected, but uh, a really nice recovery. Tim, I wonder what would have happened if Carter Hart been in gold. I don't mean that is not a disparaging remark about Carter Hart, but 
Uh, Brian Elliott has a certain amount of presence, doesn't he? And he's 35 years old, and I would think he's been through a lot of scenarios like that in his career. Yeah, and that's you know what that's that's probably a fair uh, even question to ask, just because Hart's uh, struggled a little bit at times. His numbers aren't what they expected that they would be. A lot of that has to do with how the team has played uh, in, in front of them. Um, early in the season, and this just recently turned in the last uh, five games or so, but they were given up a ton of shots. They had the worst shot differential of any team in the league. Uh, after the game in Tahoe, it was a minus 151. What? The next, <laughs> the next worst team was a minus 71. I mean, it was ungodly. Uh, they were they were given up a ton. They were the last in sh- uh, shots for. And granted, I mean, sometimes that number doesn't mean what it suggests. But when you get a trend like that, that's one that one sided. Obviously, you pay attention to it. Uh, they've completely turned that around since that Lake Tahoe game. They lead the league in shots for and uh, are finding ways to create offense with a good forecheck. And the forecheck is really where it all starts. When the forecheck breaks down, they're giving up odd band breaks. They're allowing the Penguins, as was the case on Tuesday, to get up speed and come at them with speed. And that's a recipe for disaster. When the forecheck is working, everything else kind of falls into place. Well, they lost Couturier for, what, nine games, and then they had the problems with COVID. You lost four key guys. That may have contributed to some of those numbers you're talking about. You know, it did, Stuggy, but if you look at their record, even though the record was pretty good in the first month of the season, the truth of the matter was they still weren't playing their best hockey. Uh, They were playing better in some losses than they were in wins, and they were fortunate to actually win a few of those games. Uh, Only more recently, two games before uh, Lake Tahoe and then since, they've kind of started to find that rhythm kind of find that identity that Elaine Vigneault had this team playing at a year ago. If you remember, before the pause for COVID last March, they were the hottest team in the league. had won nine in a row at one point. Uh, that's the team that they're trying to get back to. And I think after the first four minutes last uh, uh, on Thursday night, that's the team they finally got back to. That's what I was going to ask you, Tim, is if you felt like they were kind of rounding into that form. Because it's funny to hear you say, uh, that they haven't played the way they wanted because almost anybody that I've seen who covers the Flyers have felt that way. I've heard it from the players there. I think I've heard Elaine Vigneault talk that way, that the team's not been back to the level, even though on paper it looked like they were. So is that have you seen that consistency a little more? I mean, three minutes aside last night or uh, Thursday night, but just generally are they starting to be more consistently looking like the team they were at the end of last season? Yeah, again, since Lake Tahoe. Tahoe was a, a really tough situation to be in because they were without six guys, and they haven't matched up against Boston at all well this year. I think they're 0-3-2 against the Bruins and have only suffered two other losses against everybody else in the Eastern Division. Um, So we we kind of put Tahoe aside, but with the exception of that, the last five games or so, they are getting back to that identity, and hopefully that's a sign that that's going to continue. But Boy, Thursday night was a sure lesson that if you're not ready to play at the top of the puck, a good team's going to make you look pretty bad. You have about 30 seconds uh, or so. Uh, Tim, uh, your thoughts on the game this afternoon? Well, you're going to see Brian Elliott again, and, and you guys are right. Elliott's been a difference maker here 
Uh, this is a perfect tandem because Elliott's the perfect backup. He he is the backup. Carter Hart is the number one. The numbers notwithstanding, uh, it's it's a good tandem though, and he's played really well. He's he's given the Flyers a chance to win every game he's played. They've got great trust in him right now. You'll see Carter Hart uh, in the Flyers' following game on Sunday, but it's going to be Elliott on Saturday, and hopefully the Flyers can pick up from in Philadelphia, hopefully, they can pick up where they left off on Thursday. All right, thank you very much, Tim, for your time. We really appreciate it. Enjoy the game this afternoon, and, uh, you know, always great to hear from you. I listen to your broadcast a lot. You do a great job. Thanks, Tim. Good good talking to you guys. Take care. Okay, that's Timmy Saunders. He is the radio voice of the Philadelphia Flyers and Mets. Uh, interesting. Uh, Elliot will go, and uh, we assume it will be Jari for the Penguins and DeSmith against the Rangers on Sunday. Uh you know, obviously the Penguins are going to be coming out with a great amount of pushback after what they went through. Uh, I expect it to be a really good hockey game. I do, too. Uh, I fear a little bit that it, they might fall into that sometimes mid-afternoon malaise. We've seen them not play their best hockey sometimes during those afternoon games. And the thing about Brian Elliott, Stag, and I don't know if you agree with this, maybe the best thing that could happen to a guy like that, I know he's a veteran, he's been around a long time, but it seems like moments when he's been cast as the number one guy, he doesn't always play his best hockey, but he's always been a tremendous second guy, a second option, and then he kind of nibbles away at the games of the starter, and he's doing that now for the Flyers, which isn't good news for the Penguins. They have to go up against him again. I know that they've had some success against him over the years, but he's going to be feeling really good after Thursday night because he shut them down the rest of the way. I know they didn't really make him work quite as hard as they were asking him to early in that game, but Penguins definitely have their work cut out against them if they play the uh, consistent Flyers again with the goaltending of Brian Elliott that he showed on Thursday. You know what a lot of people don't realize is that goalies actually peak in their 30s. Like you look oh, yeah. at you know, Henrik Lundqvist, yep. uh, Marty Brodeur, probably, you know, he was great all the way along. But if you look at it, even Marc Andre Fleury, to me, he looks more, you know, mature and a, and a better goaltender now than he ever did in his 20s. Uh, they're more cerebral, I think. They can think well, the position maybe better than they can when they're young and not rely completely on athleticism. That's so true. And I think Elliot's a good example of that. He's 35 years old. Uh, another thing I just wanted to ask you about is, uh, you know, when the Penguins play the Flyers, there's always a volatility to it. I, it's it's weird, but when they come to Pittsburgh, I always feel like they draw some bad things out of the Penguins. Like they, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like the Penguins don't play their best brand of hockey against Philadelphia for whatever reason. And I don't know if it's emotions or what it is, but it just feels like uh, you know structure is not as good as it can be, and they come sometimes panic like they did uh, on Thursday night in their own end. Just things that just uh, they don't do on a regular basis. Well, there's a reason I've always called it cross state hate when these two teams come together because I think it does get the, the the hair on the back of their necks up. They come in, they're they're ready for a fight. Sometimes they don't want to just play their best hockey game because they are so emotionally charged for that rivalry. And it's usually the worse elements that come out in that rivalry than it does just straight great hockey. So I think when they find ways to kind of control that and stay out of penalty trouble and just not give opportunities to the Flyers that aren't there already you know like don't give them anything that they're not taking from you such as just making great plays don't give up those special teams opportunities because i know their their power play is sort of mid-tier this year 
But in, in my mind, the Flyers' power play is always good just based on the, the players that they have. And when you match that up against the Penguins' PK that's not necessarily playing as well, that's an that's a, a arrow in the quiver you don't need to give the Flyers. And I think the Penguins' emotions tend to do that. I think what we learned from these first two games of this three-game series is that you know coaches like to talk about, we needed to play for 60 minutes. Well, you know what? The other team's thinking the same thing. Yep. And there's going to be a period of the game, unless the other team stinks, where they're going to push back and they're going to make life difficult for you, as the Flyers did in the first game when they were really good in the first period. The Penguins had to weather a storm, right? Uh, so, you know, if there's one thing we need to, to kind of take in stock of is that it, it, this game, even this afternoon, there could be moments where the Flyers look great and moments where the Penguins look great. The key is how you stifle that momentum, stem the tide, and get it back. And I think, you know, you saw what the uh, Flyers did in Game 2. <laughs> they were able to completely seize the momentum away from the Penguins. But it's going to be important, I think, for the Penguins to to make sure they keep that game on an even keel. Well, it's just a, always a tug-of-war. I mean, you you have to try and steal momentum back from the opponent. And I mean, that goes against any team that you play, but specifically in these games, I think if you go back and watch Penguins Flyers from the Sidney Crosby of Genny Malkin era, it almost always goes that way. I know they owned the Flyers for the early portion of that matchup, but generally since these teams both became sort of playoff contenders, they always are going back and forth and in games. And for that 60 minutes, you might see 10 games or 10 minute swings where one team is just controlling play. Then all the all of a sudden you get a big save on one end and it just they get momentum from it and they're working hard and getting, you know, a long grind cycle down in the offensive zone and getting some opportunities. So you just got to find ways to I don't want to say score early because the Penguins did that last night, but find ways to take advantage, score, play sound defensive hockey to stem the tide of the momentum when it shifts on you because there are a bunch of good teams in this league and you said it on post game on Thursday. Both, there are two teams on the ice at all times. It's not a matter of just what you do. You've got to react to what the opponent does. And we will be happy to be bringing you the game this afternoon on the Penguins Radio Network. For Brian Metzer and Wayne Gretzky-Anderson, I'm Paul Steigerwald. Thanks for listening, everybody, to Penguins Live Weekly, and we'll talk to you again next Saturday on the Penguins Radio Network, presented by s Bank.